Okay, uh, let's, let's uh, get started. <clears throat> I'd like to read from Philippians chapter 2, uh, verses 1 and 2. <clears throat> Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So it's that second verse that I want us to reflect upon. <clears throat> complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, but just to review for a second that really this idea of leaving in order to cleave <clears throat> is expressing the unity of, of this new relationship that the two will become one flesh. And what we were saying is that marriage is to become uniquely formative in, in a comprehensive way. It becomes the relationship in our life, our earthly relationship. And it comes with an awareness of, of differences, of our different pasts and habits and ways of thinking, the ways, you know, what we are leaving, but also then what we are bringing. And so what does that mean uh, for in terms of becoming one flesh? There's a sense in what will be, what's going to happen with any couple. There's this union of body and soul, uh, this, this physical, emotional, and spiritual and intellectual uh, union that takes place uh, even the couple that's the least unintentional is, is the least thoughtful about this. But it's also talking about what should be this commitment to go in the same direction and to grow in the same direction, having the same goals and the same desires and this commitment to learn how to think together and how to be of the same mind, or we would say mindset. And now we're going to uh, see in this lesson here why this word mindset. Why are we using this and why is this going to be an important word that's going to control kind of the organization of our thinking in these next three lessons. The word that is underneath these phrases it appears twice in Philippians 2, 2 where it says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, the same mind there, and then towards the end of the verse, of being of, of one mind, the same word appears twice. And it's the Greek word for nao. And we have different words uh, in the Greek language that, that talk about thinking. But this word is a little bit different because it's not just about thinking. It's, it's really more about the agenda of your thinking. It's talking about the fact that <clears throat> your and my thought life tends to be disposed, that all of our thinking has an agenda. There is, there's a certain direction in which our, our thinking goes, whether we're a Christian or a non-Christian. Uh, whether in this moment I, I'm thinking uh, in a way that is very selfish and, and sinful and, and arrogant, or if it's a way that's very Christ-like and humble and, and edifying and helpful to somebody else. <clears throat> and this is an important idea. And so uh, let me read you a couple of passages that really help to illustrate what we're talking about. Like Matthew 16, 23, in the context of that passage, Christ had said to his disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to die uh, and be crucified. And Peter rebukes him and says, no, this should, this should not be. 
And our Savior says this. He turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And what he's concerned about there is that not that Peter had some random thought, but he's saying, Peter, this line of thinking is demonic. This heads in a direction that is completely counter <clears throat> to what I'm committed to. And this agenda behind this thought that you have is not driven by God. It's not in the interest of God. This is a, a human way and an earthly way of thinking upon things. This comes out in Romans 8, uh, 5 through 7. It says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind in the flesh is death, but to set the mind in the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And you see what it's saying. Every Christian experiences this spiritual warfare in themselves of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who animates our spirit, invigorates us with the resurrection power of Christ, is battling against the flesh, even while the flesh is resistant to the spirit. And it says that these are not just, you know, random ways of thinking, that these types of thought head in two different directions. And that person who sets their mind in the flesh, that's actually a way of life, if that's the direction they continue to go. And it leads to death, it says. But the person who sets their mind on the things of the spirit, this is life. This is peace. This is something that's pleasing to God. And so you see what it's saying? It's not just that we have thoughts. And every now and then you have a random thought. But most of your thinking is not like that. Most of your thinking runs in a direction. And it's saying this is the, tr the case here. In Philippians 3, 19, Paul is distancing himself from the Judaizers. And he says this about them. <clears throat> he says, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and their glory in their shame with their minds set on earthly things. And what he's saying there is that that is a ministry that's completely counter to our ministry. And he says, we are the true circumcision. We are the ones whose citizenship is in heaven. But that ministry over there, uh, their glory is in their shame, the God is their belly. Their mind is set in an earthly way. It's driven by different agendas, two different ways of thinking, two different agendas, two different approaches, two different foundations, etc. And then in Colossians 3, Two, it says, set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. That's a passage we'll come back to in our last session. And there Paul is saying, uh, essentially, that the things of earth are less real than the things of heaven. In this sense, that your life, your life is seated at the right hand of God. It's bound up in Christ. It's hidden with Christ. That's your life. And you set your mind on those things, the things of the kingdom of God. So this word is really important to us, and it's a helpful thing. John Owen says that with this word, it's not just thinking, your affections are bound up in this. And that's, that's really helpful, uh, because uh, what this has in mind is that uh, our thoughts are shaped by our whole heart. Whether that heart is born again, regenerate, or it's a heart of stone and pitted against God. What's the state of that heart? And, and the heart uh, has three functions to it. There's the mind of the heart in Scripture. It's, it's our knowing. It's the desires of our heart, what we love, those things that the Puritans called our affections. Then there's the will of the heart, uh, our choices, our, our decision-making, the things that we choose. That's the volition of the heart. And our, th our thoughts, our thought life tends to move 
in the direction of, of our desires, the things that we love, and our will. And of course, for a Christian who's been reborn, all of this is, is conforming to Christ. All these things are, are the things that are agreeable to the kingdom of God, to his will, that disposition to, to love Christ, to pursue those things that are pleasing to him. Richard Sibbs puts it this way, what the heart liketh best, the mind studieth most. The best of your thought life is going to go in the direction of what you love. It's inevitable, whether you're a Christian or not. But see, this word is talking about the fact that um, our whole heart is, is shaping our thought life. This comes out with regard to the unbeliever in Romans, Romans 1. There it speaks of uh, a person who is not a Christian who suppresses the truth un in unrighteousness. And then it, and Paul just kind of unleashes all these, these words that talk about what is the thought life of a person uh, who is set against God. And he says this person is given over to a debased mind, to futile thinking, to foolishness, uh, to darkness. Their mind is hostile to God, the same thing that Romans 8 says. And so what we're talking about here is, is the fact that our minds just don't have random thoughts. It's, it's, it's not like a Christian just happens to have uh, more Christian thoughts on occasion than non-Christian. That's not true. It's a mindset. Or as the NIV translate, it's the attitude. And that's what this word is referring to. And that's what Paul is talking about in Philippians 2, that you should have a mindset that is, that is the same. You should have a mindset that, that is one. And he's speaking to, to Christians here, uh, but it applies no less to marriage. And especially if what we're saying is true, leave in order to cleave, points to the union of this marriage relationship. Well, this is a passage that would in particular be very helpful as we think of it, how it would relate to marriage. Now, an interesting question, if we were in a smaller group and our, our chairs were in a circle, I would throw out a question like this, uh, name something when you were first married that surprised you and how you and your spouse were so different. What was it that shocked you about that or how you approach your mindset was, was completely different. I did that. I've only done one other marriage conference and I was so happy I asked this question because it's extremely entertaining to hear the things that were said. And I thought I'm creating lots of work for the pastor of these people. They have lots to do given the things that I was hearing said. But you know, Philippians 2 here, it's saying that we need to have the same mindset. We need to be like-minded. If what this word is, um, what this word is about is all that I've said, then it's helpful for us to, to think upon this as couples. That what Paul is saying, we need to be thinking in the same direction. Having the same attitude, there should be the same disposition of thinking between us. Now, at the very, at the very outset, that means we're committed to the same Christian goals. That as a couple, we're committed to sanctification. We're committed to, to peace. We're committed to love. These are fundamental. Any Christian couple would agree to these things. And the whole goal of our marriage is to, is to encourage each other towards Christ. Uh, that what we're concerned about is conforming ourselves to his will. That's what we pray in the Lord's Prayer. That's what we pray as a couple, that we would be conformed to him and, and that we would be serviceable in his kingdom, that together 
not just our individual gift set, but what we bring as a family, as a, as a new unit, what we bring as husband and wife would, would be helpful to the kingdom of God. And then, of course, ultimately, uh, the true chief end, not just of individual Christians, but of this marriage, is the glory of God. We're committed to these things. These are, these are we don't even have to think twice uh, to understand these things. But in order to reach these Christian goals, it means we have to be committed to the same Christian principles to get there. And of course, that's what Paul is talking about in Philippians 2. His overall program is you need to be one, you need to be united. Then we get, what he gets into next is you need to be humble if you're going to become one. To reach this unity, you need humility. That'll be the next lesson. But this means that we're committed to the same Christian principles. We're committed to what Christ says is fundamental to being a follower of Christ, and that's self-denial, that we're committed to that in this relationship more than we're committed to my indulging myself and my interests. I need to protect myself. I want my own bank account. These are the things we're going to do so I can protect myself and my interests in this relationship. Now, you misunderstand. That's not what marriage is. Marriage is is self-denial. It means I'm in a relationship where I'm committed to giving. That's fundamental to any Christian relationship that I'm not going to be taking. I'm not looking for my self-interest. I'm looking out for you. How can, I, how can I give in this situation? And of course, committed to humility. Any of those things that speak of Christ, all those things that honor Christ, that reflect Christ, that reflect who I am in Christ, these are the principles we're committed to uh, in terms of having this same mindset. And of course, that, that means uh, working together on these things, communicating together. Think of what we were just talking about in terms of, of intimacy, intimacy. Marital intimacy in terms of our hearts drawing closer together, this disclosure and this discovery and, and the humility and the transparency that this, this demands and the role of the will of the heart in this, uh, that I'm committed to this situation it means I'm resolved to listen to you. That's an act of self-denial. Being, becoming a good listener, that's an act of love. We're committed to that. But let me throw out a question to you and you can feel free to answer this if it doesn't cause too much dis, you know, harm to your relationship tonight. But think of an area or a topic where you and your spouse have agreed to disagree. What made that so difficult? I mean, you don't have to tell me what the topic is, but just think upon that. What, what made that so hard? I mean, what I, what I just talked about are fundamental principles of every Christian knows. When I say these things, any Christian in this room would say, yeah, that's true. I'm, I'm committed to honoring Christ, reflecting Christ in my relationship. But why was it hard when you happened upon some area where you just could not come to an agreement? What made it so hard? And it gets at these, these root things um, that we struggle with as a Christian that we also struggle with in a marriage. And it gets down to our pride and, and our selfishness which we want to talk about in the next session. And I think it helps to uh, bring up one subject or one, one thing that I think is important to understand of, okay, we're committed to the same mindset, but it doesn't mean that the finest unity is obtained through uniformity. What I mean is we do not have to have the same opinions about everything. We don't have to even have the same intellectual gifts. I don't mean capacity, I mean gifts or 
uh, have identical thoughts. That's not what we're talking about. It means that we're committed in such a way that we can find a way to work together, working towards the same, same goal. But we may actually disagree about some things. And what this is going to mean is respecting uh, the fact that my spouse has a different approach, a different way of thinking. There are many marriages, maybe most in this room, I have no idea, where one of you is more conceptual in the way that you think. Or one is more abstract. One is more computational. One is more theoretical. One, one is more practical. And so neither one of those is necessarily right or wrong, right? To, to be abstract versus practical is one of those more sanctified than, than the other? You know, in our marriage, Carol is really good with numbers. I'm not as good with numbers. Is, is it more sanctified to be in one of those places? Is it? We would not say that. But how do we work together in that? And I think it's respecting that. We have different approaches. And some couples have different speeds. It's interesting talking to couples where both of them came to the Reformed faith. It's fun listening to the chronology of how that happens. Like who came first? And then how quickly did the other one come? It's a, it's a very interesting conversation to hear, a story to hear of couples. Was one more sanctified than the other because they got there first? Some would say yes, but that's not the right answer. My wife got there first, by the way. But, but, but you see what I'm saying? We, we're pitted, we can sometimes pit something against uh, each other and it's not true. And, and I think this is, this is true in lots of areas in life. So um, I work on a committee for a denomination, Christian Ed Committee, and we get all the evaluations from every internship in the denomination. And we look at every single one of those. We read all it's read. Uh, we, we see the, the computations in, in terms of how these candidates did. But we're also reading them to kind of get a sense of the mentors and what they say. And there was one internship where the intern was marked unteachable. He was unteachable. Now that's not a flattering thing. You don't want that on your evaluation as a potential minister of the gospel. As an intern, he's unteachable, which means what? He's arrogant. Can't tell him anything. Doesn't listen. It just so happened I knew something about this internship. And uh, it was not my internship, by the way. And um, I knew that they had a disagreement on doc a doctrinal issue where we have lots of disagreements in our denomination over something that is, is not anything crucial to the orthodoxy of the gospel. It's an area where ministers disagree. And he was upset that this intern did not agree with him. And therefore, he was unteachable. He just disagreed. And this happens in relationships, too. You might even have a husband who says, I'm the head of this house. You have to agree with me. You're not submitting. Submission is not agreement. And this can be leveraged in both directions. And I think it's an area where we have to be, be careful. And I think we have to appreciate the fact that these two different approaches actually is what strengthens a relationship. Where a combination of two different minds can add to the overall strength of the marriage. For having two different angles is more advantageous than just one angle. Or two rough uh, surfaces bond more uh, helpfully and strongly than two smooth surfaces. And this is true in marriage as well. Now there's sometimes 
<clears throat> there really is a submission issue. Sometimes there's a disagreement uh, because I just don't want to agree with you. This can, you know, this can be warped and twisted lots of ways. But I think it's important for us to appreciate this, that <clears throat> being committed to the same mind, having one mind, we're trying to get on the same page. We're trying to walk in the same direction for the sake of Christ and for the sake of our adding beauty to our church and to our, our, our neighbors and to our overall family life. But that doesn't mean we always have to agree on everything. And this also means, by the way, there are couples been married for several decades. I had a couple told me that said we still find ourselves bickering. And I asked them, I said, well, what, what are you bickering about? You know, and it turned out it's something so fine tuned. It's just ridiculous. Like we don't like the same mustard. Well, that's OK. You know, and, and what happens is couples in those first couple of years, they're, they're mowing down all the big stuff, all the major things. Where are we going to go to church? That's a big decision, especially for couples that come from a different tradition. Finding that church is important. It's important to the marriage. That's a big deal. How are we going to raise our children? How are we going to do our finances? How are we going to raise? There's all these major things that they tackled. And then they get to the second tier stuff. And they start tackling that. And after 30 years of marriage, guess what they're disagreeing about? Stuff that's about that important. But their perception is that we're still arguing. That's not arguing. They've got it so fine-tuned. They're going so strong in the same direction that they should really be encouraged. And so I think this is an area where we, we need to kind of keep the whole thing in perspective in that we're committed to the, to the same program, but the way we approach things is different. The way we think upon things is going to be a little bit different. And that's okay. And in fact, here's a question I can throw out at this point. How important is it that men and women think differently? And why is that not the most important factor necessarily? I mean, I've dealt with a couple once and he was so prone to say, I just think this is where men and women are different. And then he would tell you how they were different. He says, I think women, and I just said, I think you need to be really careful. First of all, as I look at your wife's face, I think you're in the danger zone. <laughs> and I didn't see any weapons on her when you walked into the room, so I think you're going to be okay. But secondly, it's just flat out false. And I was reading this essay by Dorothy Sayers. It's called Are Women Human? And she's a brilliant writer, hung out with C.S. Lewis, part of the Inklings. And she says this, and she's talking about differences with men and women and how this works out in work and all this stuff. And she says this, Sometimes I have a thought because I'm a person. In other words, it wasn't a thought because I'm a woman. It's because I'm a human being. And there's a lot of what I do is because I'm a person, right? It's because I'm a human being. And there's a lot of times when maybe, maybe when men and women are different in some things and how they approach certain things. That's true. But you know what? It doesn't matter. I have no concern. I literally have zero concern with how women think about X, Y, or Z. You know why? I need to be concerned about that one woman over there and how she thinks about things. That's it. I don't have to worry about all those other women or other men. What do men think? Should I conform to that? No, I should be the godly man God has called me to be in this relationship working with this woman. And that's what matters. And you see, that's part of the leave and cleave. I'm cleaving to this one relationship, not to generalizations, not to be concerned about what do women want? I'm not, I don't care about that question. And none of us husbands should care about that question. We're concerned about what does this woman want? What does this woman need? And we'll work that out and we'll work together. 
as husband and wife and have the same mindset together. That's why in one sense that some of those questions are just really not that important. But now having said that, that unity is not uniformity, unity demands agreement on the central things. That's exactly what Paul is assuming here, that we're sharing the same faith. So in Ephesians 4, in the first opening verses, he has some of the same concerns about the unity of, of the church. But notice what he says. He says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. We can't have disagreement about that. There are certain things that are so central, so core to this relationship that this marriage will not work if we do not share these things in common. It's one of the valuable things about on a Lord's Day, standing up together and together confessing the Apostles' Creed. The same content, the same truth, the same vital truths that the Christian church has been confessing for over 16 centuries. There's something beautiful about that. In so many languages, in so many churches, these are things that hold us together. And every marriage has those things, plus these things. There's so many things that are crucial that we have to hold together. And these are these things that uh, we're, we're coming together as, as husband and wife and uniting around these things. So one of the things that helps us in this is, is the fact that we're committed uh, to the same mindset. And where we find hope in this is that we're committed to the same standard. And that standard, of course, is the Word of God. Where we read the Scriptures together. In Romans 12, 2, it says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Ephesians 4.23 says, be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And so here, Paul lays out two tracks, right? And he says, the thing that we have to avoid and the thing that we have to do. And the thing that we avoid, he says, do not be conformed to this world, literally this age. And the idea he has here is not to be stamped into its, its mold, not to be shaped by the world. And I think it's intriguing that here in this gospel where Paul does something more elaborately and to greater extent than he does in any of the book he's written, and that's to lay out the logic of the gospel. He just simply says, here's what the gospel is. And he begins in, in talking about how, how all of creation is accountable to the existence of God. He talks about how both Jew and Gentile are fallen in sin and the consequences of that. He talks about justification by faith. He talks about uh, sanctification. He gets all the way up to chapter 12, and this is how he begins. He says, it's about your mind. He says, in view of the mercies of God, you need to appropriate those mercies of God. And you need to be careful uh, that you're not conformed to this world, but that your mind is being transformed and renewed. This is striking that he, he starts here. He, and he's basically saying, your mindset is key. To show how you understand the gospel, whether you're appropriating the gospel, here's where it begins. It begins in your mindset and this is what's fundamental about your mindset. You cannot be conformed to the world. That's not who you are any longer. You don't think like that. You don't talk like that. You don't work like that. And this renewal comes through Scripture to be transformed by the Word of God in your, in your mind. But this is what we're committed to together. 
This is why couples, you, you should be praying together. You should be opening up scripture together, to, at least to some degree, to some part. I'm not saying you have no, no longer have private devotions. I'm just simply saying that you take a few moments where you open the scriptures, read it, and you pray together. But beyond that, in all your private reading of scripture, your whole life is laid bare before him, and you're asking God to, to conform you to Christ, to help you to die to sin and to walk in righteousness, to see the, the fruit of the Spirit fanned in the flame in your life. And this renewal comes in part from Scripture, but renewal comes in part through your spouse. It's your spouse who many times is that, is that helpful uh, person to, to talk to you about where these areas of friction are, where the rubber's not meeting the road, and who says to you, I know you say you're committed to these things, but this, what's happening here absolutely contradicts it. There's so many things that we learn because of, of our spouse who, who showed us something. I just read this in scripture and they're so excited and they, they talk to you about it. And so I've never thought about it that way. This is, this is part of it. But sometimes our mindset and our perspective or attitude is best reoriented by our spouse. And this is a person that we have invested the most trust in. This is the person who has proven to us through their commitments and through their sacrifices, they are absolutely, they're on our team. And helps us to see a new perspective, not about the Christian faith in general, but about how I'm living my Christian faith and how I'm living it out or not living it out. And getting on the same page means many times that I've been giving lip service to being on the same page, but it's not how it's really working out. You can probably think of some practical ways in which you can do this, and we can take some questions about this. But I think this is one of the most beautiful things about, about marriage, that as I'm reflecting here upon unity and uniformity, but, but unity that, that must be there in central things about in marriage, how the things where um, our spouse brings beauty and, and complexity in, into our world and things we never saw before, and to, to be there when they see that for the first time. I remember on our 10th wedding anniversary, uh, we're driving out west and I was with Carol and we drove from Nebraska to Colorado on our way to Buena Vista. And to see my wife, to see her face the very first time she saw the Rocky Mountains and just going, her jaw just kept dro dropping. She'd never seen anything like this. And to see that. And there's many times when you're talking to your spouse and you're, you're sharing something with them and the lights go on and you're seeing something for the very first time in their life. And it's a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful thing. But a lot of times it's, it's taking place only because we've given that person access. As we think of the intimacy we were talking about earlier, you know, discovery and disclosure, uh, that we're, we're getting these vistas into ourselves, and we're being helped. A lot of times it's not beautiful. It's clumsy or it's ugly or it's hard but they're helping you, they're, they're moving you along and pulling you with their arm around you, encouraging you, showing you where your mindset before was deficient. Maybe it was rebellious, where it needs improvement and vice versa. I think this is an important ingredient what we're talking about in, in marriage and how this, this comes not at the expense of our individuality or our interests that it's helpful as couples sometimes to read a book together and it's kind of fun. And 
you know, to get your spouse to finally read Zane Gray and see why he's so brilliant as a storyteller and say, yeah, that was uh, interesting. <laughs> I'm going to go back to reading history, you know, so that you can do both. There's some things you do together because we're committed to a couple. I need to understand your world and why you're interested in this. I want to see why you're so excited about this author or this book or this painting, whatever it is. And you find that middle ground, but there's but you don't have to just always be the committee of compromise. Having the same mindset means we can never ever have our own individuality. We have to agree on everything and we're gonna find that middle ground to make sure that everybody's miserable. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about you can continue to enjoy the things that you enjoy. She does not have to become a deer hunter. I mean, it's awesome if she does, right? Because she can reload for you. That's fantastic. But I'm saying there's a lot of couples feel like that's what we got to do. And I remember when my, uh, after his kids got older, my father, he stopped golfing. It took too much time away from, from mom. And he tried to find something they could do together. But he didn't leave off all of his interests. He didn't stop flying and other things that he enjoyed and, or the books that he liked to read. It's why can't it be both these things together? And sharing those things that we hold in common and understanding where your spouse is coming from, building that life together, but without saying we have to agree on everything. There has to be absolute uniformity. That's not what we're talking about. It's these differences that make it so interesting. There was a couple in my uh, very first pulpit. And she was one of these women that um, you never saw her without her being... Um, how do I say this? You're just really nicely dressed, uh, made up well, never pretentious, just a, a beautiful woman, but just always nicely dressed, elegant. She had handwriting that you soon was generated by some exact computer. It was the most beautiful script somebody had come up with. And it, I mean, you treasured whatever she wrote to you. You kept those notes. They were just magnificent. And she was married to Frank, a pipe fitter wore jeans, and had the, had the thickest Philadelphia accent you ever heard, you know. Always talk like that. And then one time, she was talking about they're going camping. I said, wait, stop, 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 stop. You go camping? This doesn't make any sense. Just, oh, I love camping. And this couple, they're so different in terms of what you, you were confronted with visually, but a beautiful marriage. And there's so many couples you and I have known like that. Like, how did you two even get together? Right? But they bring something so wonderful in that combination. They don't put off their own personalities, individuality, but they build something together that's really, really sweet.